Welcome back to a brand new episode of Teen to Life. I am here with Steve. Steve has been in the food business, I could say, for quite some time. And yeah. he is the VP of People and Culture. Yep. So, uh, as VP of People and Culture, what exactly is your role and what do you do? I guess if I boiled it down, Matthew, to its simplest ingredient, um, I'm responsible to oversee the employment experience of a person in our company. Mm -hmm. So from the day an, a person applies to a role yeah. to the day that that person retires or resigns or leaves the business for whatever reason, I'm responsible for delivering the programs, benefits, payroll, um, and cultural experiences that that person is going to experience over that time. Employment experience is what we call it. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So what exactly is um, Fine Choice Foods? Oh, Fine Choice Foods is, um, is an Asian food manufacturer. It's, it's a company that was founded in 1986 by the Louis family mm -hmm. who had emigrated to Canada from Hong Kong and like many immigrant families trying to figure out how are we going to make it in this new world? You know, right. things are different. What can we do? How do we participate? Um, and they were making dim sum products and selling it out of the back of their store um, and realized this has really become very popular. And so they decided to devote themselves to food manufacturing. And so they opened up a business on Canby Street. And then over the past 30 seven years, um, they've grown the business. They actually have sold the business about seven years ago, I think. And now it's called Sung Foods, is that correct? No, that's our brand. Oh, so the company okay. is, le our legal entity name is Fine Choice Foods Limited. Okay. And then we produce one brand, which is our own proprietary brand, and it's called Sum. Now Sum I see. is sort of a play on words in Chinese. Uh, dim Sum means food from the heart. Sum is heart. And so our brand is, is heart. Yeah. Right? We make dim sum products. Our brand is called Sum. It's food from the heart. Mm -hmm. And yeah. this is located in Richmond. And how many facilities have you guys opened up? Yeah, we've got two production facilities in Richmond, a head office in Richmond. Everything is in Richmond. Um, and uh, we make all of the, the product there. We make a variety of different spring roll products, uh, dessert roll products, and, um, and gyoza as well. How has the company changed since the change of ownership? What improvements or not improvements have you seen? Yeah, that's an interesting question. Um, well, the company's been bought by an American investment firm and, and they recognized the uniqueness of our product, um, mm -hmm. which is why they chose to invest in Fine Choice Foods. Um, they recognized that there's probably a much bigger and brighter future for this organization, but it's going to require some investment and it's going to require some different management and it's going to require a lot of change. Um, the change is really about bringing sophistication into the family-led organization. You know, the family was very good at a variety of things. You know, their commitment to quality of the product and authenticity of the recipes is unparalleled. That's why our product is so delicious. Their 
customer relationship um, was fantastic. And so they've got very strong, we still have very strong relationships with all of our retail customers. Um, but what the family perhaps wasn't focused on is continuous improvement and adopting new technologies so that we can be more efficient, so that we can be safer for our employees, so that we can be more um, focused on food safety and things like that, as well as just expanding into bigger markets. You know, expanding into the U.S. market is such a challenging and ominous objective, um, and a lot of companies fail at it, and, and they had not really... Uh, they had not, I don't know to what degree they had try, tried exploring the U.S. market, but that's, that's been our goal for the last couple of years, and, and we've successfully done that now. Mm -hmm. So it's about bringing sophistication. And so if we go back to the people and culture piece, you know, um, ultimately the CEO is the custodian of the culture of the organization, and that's true in any company. Right. But we all um, have a part to play in that. And I have a big part to play in that, in making sure that we call it embracing the future while cherishing our heritage. So never forgetting our roots, never, uh, uh, never impugning our, the heritage of the organization, but always keeping that close to our heart, but opening our eyes to what future opportunities exist. Right? I see, I see. Mm -hmm. So could you just explain on what exactly your career career trajectory was how did you end up in this position and why this position oh gosh how far back do you want to go high school okay high school time wow okay <laughs> just like a brief overview of sure yeah no we can we can make it a five minute story um and you you can stop me and and no, no, no. dive into anything you want awesome. um but i'll tell you what in high school i was a bit of a misfit um i think I'm mature enough now to be able to look back and say, I was a bright kid. Like I excelled at the classes that were interesting to me. Mm -hmm. um, and I just didn't go to the classes that weren't interesting to me. And so as a result, you know, my grades were bizarre. You know, I'd, I'd get B's and A's in things like history or, or earth sciences or geography. Um, and then I was barely passing things like foods or other stuff that I just didn't have an interest in, but I was required to participate in. So as a result, I was barely graduating. And, um, and I was also just lost with the idea of what am I gonna do with my life? You know, um, I had this dream as a child that I was gonna be a pilot. Um, and then I came to the realization that that was gonna be hugely expensive and I just couldn't understand how I was going to accomplish that. So I tried thinking about other things. You know, I thought about maybe I'm gonna be a police officer, maybe I'm gonna do something different, I'm not sure. Um, and I, I couldn't figure it out. So when I graduated, I worked a whole bunch of different types of jobs. Like I went from working in fast food restaurants, washing dishes, cooking food. Uh, I worked in a lumber yard. I drove uh, a 10 ton, lumber delivery truck, I sold ladies shoes, I was all over the map, just mm -hmm. trying different things and finding aspects of it that I enjoyed. Um, and then lo and behold, one day I watched a movie with some friends. It was a movie, a war movie, an army movie, and I was inspired to join the army. And so I did. I went out and 
joined the army. I hadn't told my parents. I didn't consult them at all. Um, I just came home and said, here's the paperwork. I've joined the army. I'm going away in a few weeks. And, uh, and I went off and I did that. And once I got into it, I, I, I found that I was really enjoying it. Um, and I thought, I'm going to make my career at that. So I served six years in the, uh, in the Canadian Army. And then, lo and behold, life threw another curveball at me. I fell in love. I fell in love with a woman back here in Vancouver. I was based in Winnipeg at the time. Mm. Um, and so there was a natural opportunity at the end of the sixth year for me to leave or, or re-engage with the Army. So I chose to leave and come back to Vancouver um, to get married. And had no clue now, what am I going to do? Like, you know, I've left what yeah. I thought was going to be my career. Yeah. Now what am I going to do? Um, I saw an ad for an electrical apprentice and I knew that getting a trade would be a solid um, sort of an insurance policy about never being out of work. And so I went and applied for that. I got that job and I started working on job sites, um, learning the trade and eventually got my um, Red Seal certification as an electrician and um, was working in construction. But I was a little miffed because construction is, you know, when the building, when the cycle ends, you're laid off until the next building starts or yeah. the next project uh, starts up. And so I, I didn't like that sort of uh, breaks between work. And then I was out with a friend one day who said, hey, there's this food manufacturing company I know, they're hiring a maintenance electrician. And in my opinion, that was a great opportunity because a food manufacturing plant runs all year long. There's no yeah. breaks in work, you know, it's all indoors. Um, I thought this is gonna be great. And I started working at a company called JD Suede Foods out in Langley at the time. Um, and they were a poultry processing uh, place, they made chubby chicken for A&W and they made all sorts of different products that, that we know and, and like. And, um, and so I was working there as an electrician in the maintenance division. I got invited to be part of the health and safety committee. And that's where I really found um, something that really triggered inside of me. Like, I was able to combine my organizational skills that I'd learned in the army as well as my, my sense of drive or my initiative or my self-motivation to improve things. Again, it's things that I'd learned in the army, how to be a self-starter, how to get things done, as well as my personal um, desire to make the workplace as safe as possible for myself, as well as my colleagues. Um, and once I got involved with the health and safety committee, uh, I was approached by the director of HR at the time who said uh, he was going to create a position for a full-time health and safety coordinator. Mm -hmm. And was I interested in that role? And I said, you know, we both acknowledged that I wasn't qualified for it. I didn't have any certification right. or, or formalized education in that area. But we came up with a plan and, and a, that was my first sort of career job. Now, as I said, that was the director of HR. So I was in health and safety. I reported to HR which is ultimately what led me into HR proper because as I 
as I expanded my abilities and got things under control with regards to health and safety, he then said, well, I need help hiring people for the plant. Can you help me with some interviewing and I'll teach you how to do that. And can I, can I get you to help me with this and I'll teach you how to do that. And so I was just gobbling this stuff up because it was fascinating. I loved learning it this way. I loved the practicality of learning something by watching and then doing it myself and applying that new skill or that new knowledge. And it all fit into what was sort of a common thread of what I'd always enjoyed about many of the roles that I'd had. It's about helping people. It's about how do we, how do we continuously move the business forward and achieve business objectives, but help people at the same time. And that's what I found about HR that absolutely lit a fire in me. And that's, you know, that's the career I've been on for the last almost 25 years now. Mm -hmm. What does a day in the life of you career-wise look like? So you get to the office or do you get to an office and what do you do? Yeah. Um, yeah, I do work in the office 98% uh, of the time. Um, so I'll go into the office and I typically, on Sunday, I'll have sat down at some point in the afternoon or the evening and sort of jotted out here are the priorities that I think I'm going to be dealing with this week. You know, I've got certain projects that, you know, run throughout the year that, you know, you've got to um, achieve at a certain deadline. So, and then there's this stuff that sort of just bubbles up. You know, maybe there was a, maybe there was a conflict between some employees in the plant last week and I've got to deal with it this week. So I'll, I'll have a, a list of priorities. And then you go in Monday morning and inevitably you find out, oh, here's something that happened on Saturday or here's yeah, something yeah, that happened yeah. on Sunday. And, you know, that's the burning issue. Uh, then we have a team meeting at 10. So that, that means that, you, that allows time to go into the office, spend a couple of hours and, and sort of reassess, okay, what are the priorities for this week? Then the team meets and says, here's the priorities. Here's where I need help. Here's where, you know, here's some things that I see coming down the pipe. And then, uh, and then we get to work, you know, um, a lot of the work that we do is sort of independent. You know, I have other people on my team that have sort of focused areas of responsibility around mm -hmm. recruiting or employee relations or uh, facilitating committee meetings or whatnot. Um, and then, uh, and then there are aspects of our work that is much more collective. So for instance, right now we're working on putting together an employee handbook. And so one of the ladies on my team, Harmon, she's overall responsible for delivering the handbook, but she's calling on different subject matter experts to input various areas of, of their expertise that needs to be covered in the handbook. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So a, a, a nice balance of um, team and individual focused work. I see. And yeah. is one of the things you do hire people? And Absolutely. Uh, with that comes firing people. Uh, yeah, unfortunately, yes. Yeah. Yeah. What, how, how, how does firing a person look like and how do you make it so that it doesn't be done on them? Because at the end of the day, the person that might be working there, you know, that is their source of income, that is how they support their family. How are those decisions made to fire someone and how do you go about doing it? Well, um, one of the fundamental lessons I was taught very early on was, yes, um, as an HR person, you are sort of the, well, let me, let me put it this way. HR people are supposed to be 
generally impartial between the employer and the employee. They're supposed to be able to navigate a very narrow path, um, but they're, they're, responsi they're responsible to advocate for the employee to an extent. Um, and that extent is when, when it's no longer reasonable for the company to deal with whatever the, the issue is. You know, mm -hmm. it could be a bad behavior, it could be a bad performance or whatever. Um, so, so first and foremost, um, if a manager were to come to us and say, hey, um, you know, Fred, Fred's just not fitting in well and we think Fred needs to leave the business, the first thing we do is we sort of scrutinize how, how did he come to that conclusion? Have we taken all the steps that we reasonably should be taking to try and correct things? Because behaviors can be corrected, right? You know, if Matthew is showing up late for work and nobody addresses Matthew about it, mm -hmm. then Matthew assumes that that's acceptable. And guess what? Matthew shows up five or six minutes late every day. Right. But it's not unreasonable for the employer to sit down with Matthew and say, hey, Matthew, guess what? You know, your start time is at 8.30. We expect you to be here at your workstation for 8.30. So we're going to need you to take some different steps in order to be here. And, and we might go through you know, a variety of different steps to try and correct that behavior. <clears throat> um, on the other hand, you've got things like, you know, if, if there's a physical confrontation, that's a, there's, you don't get multiple chances at that. Right, yeah, if yeah, there's yeah. theft or other issues like that, yeah. that's a one and done. So, so ultimately, um, let's, let's get to the point where we're actually ending the employment relationship. So we will have done a bunch of work in the background to understand, you know, what are our legal obligations? What are we required to pay to Matthew if it's Matthew that we're going to let go? Mm -hmm. And making sure we've got all of that ready. And then we're going to sit down with Matthew, ideally, before he even starts his shift, right? At the very beginning of his day, we'll just, hey, Matthew, can we come sit down for a second? We'll sit in an office or a meeting room or something. And it'll be the HR person and, and your manager and your manager is going to simply explain to you that, you know, unfortunately, Matthew, you know, we've come to the conclusion that this isn't going to work out well for us and so we're ending your employment relationship today. And Steve here from HR is going to explain to you the different things that the company is going to do to ease that transition for you. And then that manager will leave the room and that's where I sit with you and allow you a couple of minutes to breathe and just sort of accept what has just been delivered to you mm -hmm. um, and then talk about, hey, you know, here's how final pay works, here's how severance works if you're getting severance, um, and here's how we're going to process your ROE so you can collect EI if that's necessary. Um, and then we also talk about what benefits are available to you and, and what support can we offer you because just because we're ending the employment relationship doesn't mean that we think Matthew's a bad person and should never work again. Um, we're just simply saying that as far as we're concerned, this relationship hasn't worked out and so we're ending the relationship. But I've got a, an ethical interest in you being able to get out and get back on your feet again. And, and so the biggest concern that I have any time that I'm involved in a termination of an employee is doing it with um, as much grace as possible and allowing the person to maintain their dignity 
and not feel um, belittled or harmed in any way by it. Because it's, right. honestly, it's a, I, I've been fired um, and, it, and it wasn't a great experience. It wasn't done well. And so, you know, I actually consider myself to some degree to be fortunate to have had that experience because there's no better learning opportunity than oh, going yeah. through it yourself. Yeah. Um, and so knowing what that feels like has only caused me to even be more focused on making sure that we're not hurting people because that's not the intention. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. You mentioned how you would sit down with them before their shift. Is there a special reason why, or is that a policy, or why before a shift and not after? Um, it's, it's my practice, it's my standard practice that a termination should be done at the beginning of the shift and should never be done on a Friday. And there's some good reasons for that. Um, you never want to do it on a Friday because typically um, government and professional offices are closed on the weekends. And so if mm -hmm. I get let go on a Friday, um, I'm going to be sort of confused and alone and without access to resources for a couple of days. And, and what I'd rather do is I'd rather be immediately going to EI, making an application or a claim Immediately, maybe I want to go see a lawyer. Maybe I, w I need to go do some right. changes at the bank. You, you, you don't want to do that and then have a person sort of twisting in the wind over the weekend. Um, the beginning of the shift, uh, it, I, ethically and morally, I feel as though there's something inherently wrong about extracting another day's work out of somebody that you've clearly made a decision that you want to end the relationship. Um, it's kind of, in my mind, I often do this. I analogize personal relationships to illustrate professional situations. Um, if you decided that you were going to break up with your girlfriend or boyfriend, um, would you do it before they took you out for a fancy dinner or would you do it at the end of the dinner? Um, me personally, I'd rather not deal with the drama of, deal, of doing it after yeah. the dinner. Um, that really feels underhanded. Um, and so perhaps it's, it's sort of along the same lines. I, see. I don't want you to feel like I just, I just squeezed another day's work out of you, even though I knew I was going to fire you. I'd rather grab you right at the very beginning of the day before you've started anything. And so that you can turn around, you, you haven't, you haven't, you know, toiled and, yeah. and poured your soul into the work. What, um, what incentive would they have to work that last day? If they know that they're being let go. Oh, they won't work the last day. So in, in that scenario, if I'm understanding you right, and let's imagine it's you and me yeah. and I'm, and I'm going to be terminating your employment. Yeah. You're the employee. You come into work. I grab you before you hit the, the plant floor. Hey, Matthew, before you go to the plant floor, I just want to talk to you a couple minutes. Um, we're going to have that conversation, and then you're going to leave. You're going to get back into your car. You're going to go oh, home. Oh, I see. Yeah. I'm not, oh, I'm not firing you and then asking you to work. Oh, I see. Yeah, yeah. Okay, no. Because okay. I thought when you said before the shift, like, you'd fire them, and then they'd go to their last few shifts. No. Oh, I see. No, no. Okay. That makes more sense. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you can do that. There's such a thing as giving working notice. I could sit down with, with Matthew and say, mm, Matthew, yeah. 
we've chosen to end your employment relationship. However, um, we're giving you two weeks of working notice. I see. Yeah. But then, the, I mean, it, it, there's a decision to be made. Is Matthew going to show up for work? Is Matthew going to feel motivated at work? Um, yeah. We're a food producer. And so we have a tremendous responsibility to ensure the safety of our food products. And so if I said, hey, Matthew, um, we're giving you two, two weeks of working notice. Well, if Matthew's not a very nice person, maybe Matthew comes into work and throws a bag of nails into the, into the product. Um, yeah. And we can't have that, right? So we typically um, don't deliver working notice. We typically end the employment relationship and pay the person for whatever working notice they were entitled to. Mm -hmm. What about the hiring aspect? Yeah. How does hiring look like? And if I was to come in for an interview, what tricks could I use to not guarantee me the job, but get me closer to getting that job? Hmm. Well, I like talking about hiring a hell of a lot more than I like oh, talking yeah. about firing. So <laughs> I'm glad we changed topics. Um, what tricks? There's no tricks, but, um, and, and I guess, you know, that's a really huge question. It depends on the job you're applying to. Um, I once read uh, somebody who I really respect and admire, and they said, there's three things the employer is trying to, to figure out during the interview. Um, one is, can you do the work, right? So are, do, you, do you have the necessary skills, intelligence, and capabilities to do the work that you're applying for? The other one is, um, can I afford to pay you for, for that work? So some jobs are very straightforward, right? You know, like we might be hiring for a job that pays $18 an hour. There's no negotiation around that. But then yeah. there's a whole range of professional careers where there's some negotiation around how much the pay is going to be. And so, so that actually becomes a consideration of, geez, you know, Matthew's got 10 years of experience. He's probably going to want $30 an hour Am I willing and able to pay that? Um, and then, so the third consideration is, do I think that I'm going to enjoy working with Matthew? And that's such an important part of it. Um, that, that talks about fit or cultural fit. Um, and, and that's unfortunately uh, an area where there can be bias in, in the hiring process, right? So, um, so those are the three things that you need to sort of be thinking about is um, how am I going to impress upon the person I'm interviewing with that I can absolutely do everything that they need done or the vast majority of it and I can learn the rest. Um, the compensation piece is just, it, it's just the compensation piece. You're gonna need to be forthright about what your expectations are and the employer's gonna need to be forthright about what they're willing to pay. And it will or won't work, right? Um, and then, the, and then the, the part about, is the employer gonna enjoy working with me? I would encourage people not to try and trick that. Um, be your authentic self. Uh, because the risk of not being authentic is um, you're gonna have to, <laughs> you're gonna to have to masquerade as that person you were in the interview right. for your whole working career. And that's not sustainable. Um, and it might not be enjoyable, mm -hmm. right? Yeah. Um, 
if you come in and you're your authentic self and, and that works for me, it, it's going to be a natural fit and it's going to be something that we're all going to enjoy much longer. Mm -hmm. yeah. When you are interviewing a person, do you throw any curveballs at them to try to see if they're uh, maybe faking a personality or to just like check if what they're saying is true? <laughs> no, no. Um, I hope you don't think the interview process is a game because it's not. <laughs> We're not trying to trick people. We're not throwing curveballs. But we do, we do, um, there is a method of asking questions within an interview in order to validate that this is truly how a person is wired or how they believe or how they work. And, and it kind of comes down to this. It's, you're asking uh, for experience-based, behavior-based, objective examples. So rather than, you know, perhaps I might ask you about, tell me, what, tell me about your initiative, right? Because maybe initiative is an important behavioral aspect or characteristic that I'm hiring for. So if I said to Matthew, hey, um, initiative is really important to us. Tell us how you relate to initiative. Well, that's a very ambiguous and open-ended question. And, and Matthew could spin a story and talk about initiative is really important to me. My parents raised me and always taught me that initiative was something I needed to demonstrate. And I've always done it. I've done it in school, blah, blah, blah. But you're, you're not really actually proving or providing me with any evidence that A, you know what it is, and B, what does it look like, and C, where have you done it? Mm -hmm. So rather than asking the open-ended question, I'm gonna, ask, um, I'm gonna ask a question that's very objective and, and, and fact-based. So I'm gonna say, give me an example of a time in your school where you've demonstrated initiative. And so that's a much tougher question because now you, you have to take a minute to think back and go, oh, I remember that time that there was this girl in my class and she was struggling. I went over to her between classes and I offered to help her and then blah, 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 blah. That's a great example. And, yeah. and you can generally sense whether that's truthful or not by asking some other probing questions. Oh, what was her name? Oh, what specific aspect of algebra was she struggling with? Um, yeah. How did you overcome, how did you teach her something that the teacher couldn't teach, right? Um, so you, you dig into those questions a little bit. So yeah, people shouldn't try and game an interview. Neither the interviewer nor the interviewee. Um, you know, something that I do that um, some people like it, some people don't like it. Um, sometimes what I do is I'll provide you the interview questions in advance. Because I have a personal belief that an interview is not supposed to be a pop quiz. It's supposed to be an opportunity for you to comfortably tell me a story about how you're going to help me solve my problems. And if I just launch these questions on you in the interview, um, there's a chance that it's not going to go well, right? People come into interviews, they're typically pretty nervous. They're, they're excited about the possibility of getting the job. They might really need the job. They might have a lot of pressure on them to get the job. And if they come in and it's a blank slate and I'm, as you say, throwing curveballs or asking difficult questions that they haven't had a chance to really think about, um, they're not often going to perform very well in the interview. And that means that they're unlikely going to 
going to make the best opportunity of getting the job. So I find that oftentimes if I send you, hey, here's a list of 20 questions. You may be asked any one of them because we're probably not going to ask 20. I may only ask seven. Mm -hmm. But at least you've had a chance to look and say, oh, he's asking questions about um, my experience. He's asking questions about my skills. Right. Um, and these are the types of questions you're going to be asking. And it's going to cause you to think about, oh, I remember that time that I demonstrated initiative. Oh, he's asking a question about um, empathy. And I'm going to have to think about where's the time that I've employed empathy within my work, et right. cetera. Right. Do you watch for body language when you're doing an interview? Of course. Yeah. What, if, 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 if I was to come in for an interview, what would make you like me more? If I was to sit up straight, dress nice, or to you is it something where just lean back and relax? Well, uh, <laughs> uh, yeah, I'm not too concerned about, I mean, dress appropriate for the role that you're applying for, right? So um, if you're applying to work on the production line in our food manufacturing plant, I don't expect you to show up in a suit. Um, if you're applying to the senior VP of sales position, um, I don't expect you to show up in a hoodie. Right. Right? Okay. Um, but the person applying to the plant role could show up in a hoodie. I'm, I'm not going to hold that against somebody. Um, so dress matters to a degree. Um, but you need to be tidy. Um, you know, don't show up with holes in your clothes or, you know, with some offensive logo or right. graphics on it or what have you. Yeah. Um, you know, be clean, be tidy, be well presented. Uh, as far as body language goes, eye contact is huge. Um, uh, it doesn't mean you have to be laser focused and staring into the back of my head, but it just means that we need to make yeah. regular eye contact. Yeah. Um, and, 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 and if there's multiple people in the room, uh, which occasionally there is, sometimes there's an HR person and the hiring manager, you know, the ability to make sure that you're looking at the person you're addressing or you're actively listening, um, that's something we watch for. Um, generally, you know, I'm not, I'm not an FBI uh, interrogator, but I do want people to be sat up. I want people to, to appear to be engaged and interested. Um, some things that have happened, like what kind of things have happened from body language that have turned me off? People who sit back with their arms crossed. Oh, um, yeah. Uh, that's that's off-putting and, and seems to indicate that they're... Closed off. They're closed off, they're not way. open, they're yeah. perhaps not being honest, um, they're perhaps thinking about other things, um, but you're not getting your best out of that person. Um, people who turn away, people who don't look at you, people who, who, I've been in interviews where they won't give eye contact to the woman in the room. Um, it's typically a man that, that does that. Right. So is that indication of a sexist belief or behavior? Um, that's off-putting. Um, um, yeah, body language matters. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I, 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 I saw this, I uh, don't remember his name, but he's all over YouTube showing 
different like tricks of like body language and how to properly speak to someone or whatever it could be a crowd you're presenting in front of mm -hmm. or one or two people uh, he said if there's if, if, if you're presenting to a few people don't look at don't glance at everybody while you're saying one sentence you look at one person when you say that one sentence and turn to the other person to say the other sentence uh, that's just something I learned and I think uh, I think it works so don't like shift eye contact between sentences so I yeah thought, that's interesting yeah yeah I think um, I mean I've I've um, certainly gone through interviewing workshops uh, how to interview effectively and there's been a lot of talk about body language you know you can see my hands my hands are on the table I'm leaned forward my feet are forward they're not sucked back underneath my chair those are all supposed to be indications of somebody who's interested energetic and truthful and open um, and that's what I look for I, again I don't get too vigilant about it oh, you know okay. if 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 your hands are on your knees instead and not visible I don't I don't walk out and go no we can't hire Matthew because his hands were in the wrong place mm -hmm. but you know you typically use body language indicators as additional pieces of evidence so if if the interview didn't go great like your answers and your responses weren't as full or as perhaps believable as possible then we might also look to body language and say oh, what, else, what other indicators were there that, that perhaps he wasn't being truthful or forthright about things? Then if we say, oh, well, there was body language that also sort of supports this theory, then we might say, okay, that's, that's a no-go. I see. Make sense? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Interesting. Interesting. If we look back at uh, school, for those students who are still in high school, and like you said, you had no clue what you were going to do after, um, and neither did they, what advice would you give them to maybe figure out what they might want to do before leaving high school? What stuff could they enroll in or what things could they do in high school to slim the, the view of, of what they might want to do? Are you asking that question through the lens of somebody who needs to then choose a post-secondary yes. path, like an, an educational path? Uh, or are you asking about somebody who wants to go from 12th grade into a job? In general, I'd say. To just, just choose a direction, either that's education or, or work. Well, I don't know that I'm qualified to advise high school people as to how to, how to chart the next path, the next steps in their path. But I can say what I did. And maybe we can expand on that, Matthew. Um, when I was graduating high school, barely, um, if I was going to go to post-secondary, I was going to have to pay my own way through school. Um, economically, where my family was at at the time, it wasn't going to be mom and dad are just going to write checks for me to go to school. They might have supported it and subsidized it, but I was going to have to work hard to pay for tuition. And the fact that I realized that and I didn't know what I wanted to do, I felt like, what the heck am I going to do? Am I going to go enroll and take a science degree because, because I'm interested in geology? Or am I going to take some arts degree that's going to lead me to nothing, but at least it's a broad sort of education? Um, 
and then I thought, well, that seems like an, a lot of wasted effort if I'm going to just enroll in something that I don't know what it leads to, and I'm going to have to sweat and toil to pay for that. So I chose not to go to post-secondary. That's why I chose to go work different jobs. That was my, that was my selection process, mm -hmm. was to go out and say, how can I possibly pick a career path if I haven't experienced some different career options? And so I'm going to go and force myself to work some really wildly different types of jobs. Um, and then perhaps my, my theory was, after a year or perhaps two years of working these different jobs, I'll have more clarity and maybe then I'll go to post-secondary. But that's, that's when I ultimately decided to join the army. Yeah. That, so that took me a completely different path. So, so here's what we've told our kids, right? Like I've got three kids, uh, 31, 28, and 26 now. And as they were finishing high school, we were less concerned about what degree program are they going into at SFU or UBC. In fact, we didn't put that pressure on them at all. Our biggest emphasis for the kids was learn what you like. Um, and, and what I mean by that is, you know, self-reflect and understand yourself enough to understand the things that you like doing and then explore if there are career opportunities there. So for instance, maybe our daughter is a big fan of photography um, and she's also not sure what she wants to do for a career. Well, if she loves doing photography, are there things associated with photography that she could go and work at and explore that path, right? And maybe she goes to work at a camera store. Maybe she goes to work at a photo studio. Maybe she goes to work um, as an understudy to a, a portrait photographer. I don't know. Um, but she's exploring that. Mm -hmm. She may come back and say, oh, that's a horrible choice for a career. Uh, it's a great hobby, but I'll, I'll find a different career. Or maybe she, in fact, she falls in love with it and, and takes it up. Um, so learning about what you love doing and then exploring the different career paths that potentially are there. Uh, and then the other thing was just teaching our kids, um, as Barack Obama says, how to get things done. If you are a person who just has the internal motivation to complete tasks and get things done. If you're a person who sees something that needs to get done and you have the initiative to go get it done, you're going to always land on your feet with employers. Because ultimately that's what we're looking for, um, especially earlier in careers. We're not expecting somebody who's 17 or 18 to walk in in an interview and be a subject matter expert at anything. Um, at that point, what we're really looking for is, does this person know how to get things done? Does this person follow instructions? Does this person you know, walk past the piece of garbage on the, on the sidewalk or do they pick it up and put it in the trash receptacle? Those might seem like silly little examples, but that's exactly the type of characteristics and, and personality traits that employers are looking for. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Interesting. Interesting. Okay, well, uh... We'll start wrapping up a bit. I have one last question for yeah. you. Um, what is your favorite book and your favorite podcast? This could be a book that helped you in your decision making on what 
um, career you might want to go into or just in general a book that you like reading and same goes with a podcast? Oh, gosh. Oh, gosh. Um, I honestly don't really listen to many podcasts, but I do have uh, two that I enjoy. One is Freakonomics. Um, with, I think it's Stephen Dubner is the host. Uh, I love that one. Uh, because I feel like it's, um, it talks about things in everyday life, but goes deep into it um, and uncovers, uh, it uncovers how it's layered, you know, I, I'm not doing any justice of trying to explain it. Uh, Freakonomics. Okay. Uh, and then the other one, what's it called? Jason Bateman, Will Arnett, and Sean Hayes host it. Oh my gosh, what's it called? I can't recall the name of it. I've only listened to two episodes, uh-huh. uh, but I find it really funny. I like those actors, um, and and they interview the the interviews I've heard so far, just celebrities, and they're just sort of breaking them down into simple everyday people and and talking with them about non celebrity sort of stuff, and it's really cool. Mm-hmm. Yeah, interesting. Well. Thank you very much for coming on. It's been a pleasure and hopefully um, the audience listening to this took away from all the hiring and firing aspects of going into business or going into whatever career you want to go into. Mm -hmm. So thank you very much for coming on. It's been a pleasure. No problem.